0: Um, Hey, you guys. Welcome to church. Hey, uh, I was joking around with Jeff earlier that because I'm the youth pastor, we're going to be very participatory. So why don't we stand up, if you're able. Why don't we stand up? Let's shake it out. It's Sunday morning. We need to get excited about church. Do you guys know that you're in the house of the Lord this morning? Yeah, you're in the house of the Lord. Okay, you guys can sit back down now that you've hooted and hollered. Uh, hey, we are in a series right now where we're continuing on in this idea of being better together. And last week, Bob introduced this uh, idea that we've all experienced uh, of depletion, of where we, we are just feeling tired and burnt out. And he gave us three main points. One of them we're going to be hitting on uh, uh, specifically today and kind of the outcome of, of this but the three that we talked about last week, if you missed, was that you'd have minimal evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, you'll have minimal results with the same effort, and you'll have minimal uh, motivation to, to keep doing things. Well, today we're going to be talking a lot about what it looks like when we have minimal evidence of the fruit of the Spirit and how that translates in conversations with other Christians in our life. If you guys have your Bible, which I hope you do because we're at church, if you don't, there. are might be a Bible in front of you, open to the table of contents, and I'm going to make you guys open the table of contents first. I do this with our students because I I feel like uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, everyone just flipped to the page that they were supposed to go to. You know how embarrassing it was for me to sit there and not know where that page was? And so I'm going to get us in the habit of flipping to the table of contents. It's in every single Bible that's ever been made, except maybe the first ones. And we're going to find the page number for the book of Ephesians. The page number for the book of Ephesians. You're going to find that page number. When you get to that page number, you're going to flip through until you see a big number four. When you see a big number four, you're at the chapter that we're going to spend time in today. Ephesians chapter four. If you guys were waiting for me to just say Ephesians four, you guys can just flip through your Bibles right now. Uh, But I would love... As we talk about being better together, what it would look like to teach other people just as we're sitting here, what does it look like to find the chapter, to find the book, to find where we're at in the Bible? Because let me tell you something. I think the reason a lot of us don't bring our Bibles is because we don't know where the things are, and we're too embarrassed to flip through and then not know where it is, and then the pastor starts talking about it, and we didn't get there in time, and so we didn't open it. So we're in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. A lot of you guys know a lot about me. Uh, Some of you guys don't know this, though. When I was in college, uh, my freshman year, I played baseball. I am not a very athletic looking person. So I was less good than other people, meaning that after my freshman year of college, I stopped playing baseball. Sophomore year, I did nothing. Junior year, I figured out I need more money to pay for school. My parents were so generous and they paid for a huge portion of school, but I wanted to scholarship it as much as I possibly could. And so I got into the exact best extracurricular I could possibly do that really lended itself well to people who are athletic. It was speech and debate. Uh, I I participated in speech and debate in college uh, for a year and a half before I left that school and it paid a good portion of my tuition. So students in here, that's an option. That's an option. Uh, This is the interesting thing about speech and debate that was exciting to me because speech and debate, let me tell you something, it's not exciting. It's not an exciting thing. You sit there and you just argue with people. And you get good at it, you get really good at it. I'm the best at arguing, ask my wife. Uh, In speech and debate though, what's cool is there's no divisions. It's not a community college division, a private college division, a state school, a university. There's no divisions. Because the the general principle is that everyone is intelligent. And being intelligent, everyone is able to make strong arguments for themselves regardless of the school that they got into. Well, I went to a tiny, private, 1,500-person Christian college, Christian university, and I started competing in speech and debate. The speech and debate program had been around for a while, but they had never had any big, big success in in speech and debate. They always, uh, quite honestly, just got obliterated, just got obliterated. Now, here's the interesting thing about speech and debate is, like sports, there's regional competition, then there's state competition, then there's national competition, and you have to win small tournaments in order to get to the bigger ones. Well, the, the first year I started competing, we, we won regional tournaments. And you're competing against every school. So UC, USC, UCLA, UCI, San Diego schools. But you're also competing against community colleges. So in our area, there was Los Angeles Harbor College. There was El Camino College. There was uh, uh, San Diego Community College, or Community College of San Diego, something like that. And, and you have all these different people. Well, the big schools, were intimidating. They're extremely intimidating because they're coming in with 30, 40 people. They're bringing in like a tour bus. They're coming off and they're just looking like they're going to just beat you to death. And and, and when I say that, like you're talking about like the nerdiest people on the entire planet. (laughs) So you're less intimidated by like physical stature, but you're like, man, they're at a big school. They must know a lot, which means I'm probably going to get crushed. Well, being at a little school and, and being a pretty competitive person in things that I know I can win at, uh, I, I was like, man, I, I really need to do this. Like, I, I, I think I could do pretty good. And in debate, what's, what's interesting is you have a, a school that is your team, but you only have a partner. And so you compete against teammates in depending on how far into the competition you get and on any given competition you can have up to eight debates in a day and a debate usually goes about 50 minutes so you're sitting there prepping or arguing for anywhere from eight to ten sometimes more hours a day and here's the situation in debate this is why it's important in debate you get really good at proving to the judges why you're right and they're dumb it's not that they're even close to right it's that they're dumb like and and you want to you want to get to a point where you're so right that any thought of these people being right is ridiculous it's ridiculous now here's the important thing about debate if the judge comes in with any sort of bias you lose if you if you have a judge that comes in with bias you lose because there's no possible way of convincing someone who comes in with bias of any other viewpoint Therefore, a judge has to present or has to evaluate the case fully fairly. And they pick judges based on that. It's not just anybody that gets to go be a debate judge. And so when you go in there, you use an argument, which Bob hit on last week, called an either-or fallacy. That's, That's saying either you do your chores or you can't hang out with your friends, parents. Either you serve in the church or you're not a good Christian. Either you believe in the spiritual gifts or you don't believe the spirit works at all today. And so you start getting into these situations where you're like, we're smart in here, so we know, well, that's not the only two points, David. There could be others, right? But if you get really good at either or arguments, there is no other. It's I'm right, you're wrong, here's why. In Christian lives, we do it this way. We don't say either or typically. We say the Bible says therefore, The Bible says, therefore, the Bible says that creation was created in a literal six days. Therefore, there's no other view possible. The Bible says that people have the gift of prophecy. Therefore, it exists today. The Bible says, and and we'll do this. And if you, just a heads up, these are opinions that will be argued to the death of the church. Uh, (laughs) I was, I, was, I was thinking about how, how hot button should I go today? Like, how, how, many, how, many, how many people should I tell is, my email address is bob at cbcventura.org? <laughs> he left me with a good one that will irritate people. He left me with a good one. As we look at this idea of an either-or fallacy, it really comes out of a position that Bob hit on last week of having minimal evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Because if we have evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our life, we have the ability to have peace with people. We have the ability to have gentleness with people and love with people. But when we're operating out of a place where we have minimal evidence of that in our life, that really quickly turns to, I'm right, you're wrong, here's why. I'm right, you're wrong, here's why. We start using uh, situations like anger and pride and this, I need to be right because... I'm just right, the students, parents, you're gonna hate hate me for this, the students, I have this saying, uh, winners win, losers lose, winners win, losers lose, so when we play games, we'll go out there, winners win, come on, baby, winners win, and it's true, we just don't say it, but winners win and losers lose, and that's a mentality that we're taught our entire life, when you play AYSO, you know, even though you get a trophy at the end of the year, you lost a bunch of games. Like, you lost. You didn't win. You're not a winner. And we know that if you won a bunch of games, you're like, yeah, chest up. I'm a winner. Winners win and losers. And I say this all the time. And in Christian circles, if we don't have the fruits of the Spirit evident in our life in in profound ways, then we have this attitude when we're talking with other people. I thought it would be fun to do something a little interesting today. Bob doesn't know about this. We'll talk about it later. That's what my wife always says. We'll talk about it later. Uh, Your note page is blank. Your note page is completely blank, and it's blank for a reason. We're going to participate in a debate. We're gonna debate the very idea of creation being a literal six days or not. You're gonna be the judge. Your job is the judge to come in with no bias, Your job as the judge is to say, I have a view, I'm checking it at the door, I'm hearing opinions. Your job as the judge is to write down the arguments from the affirmative side on this side of the table and the negative side on this side of the table. What you're going to do on your notepaper is you're going to write at the top what an either or fallacy is. And you could simply just write it's when you pin two arguments against one another without allowing room for any other. Or you could just write either, blink, blank, blank, or, which is at the top of your page already. Either or. Under it, you're gonna write the resolution. That's what we argue in debate. We argue a resolution. Something has to be resolved at the end of this argumentation. The reason we're gonna do a debate is because I want you guys to see what an either-or argument looks like in the Christian world. And because I'm pretty good at debate, I'm going to debate myself. It was really fun writing arguments against myself. It's awesome. You should have seen me writing. It was awesome. I'm going to be the affirmative team on this side. Your left side, my right, is the affirmative. And I'll let you guys know when I'm on the affirmative side. But on your piece of paper, you should draw a line down the middle. And on the left side, you should write, Affirmative, positive, A-F-F-Aff, affirmative, that's what we're doing, you're gonna get real good at writing shorthand in just a minute. On this side, you're gonna write negative, or N-E-G, neg, or op, O-P-P, opposition. Now let me clarify something real quick. In debate, the affirmative team has a burden of proof of proving to you guys why I'm right. I have to prove the resolution. The negative team doesn't. All they have to do is convince you that there might be another option. They don't have to convince you of another option or that that option is inherently wrong. They just have to convince you of another option being a possibility. That's it. Right under where you guys put either or, you guys are gonna write resolution. Resolution. The resolution's this, Christians should believe in a literal six-day creation. Resolution. Christians should believe in a literal six-day creation. The affirmative team has to prove to you why Christians should believe that. The negative team just has to tell you that there might be another way of looking at it. That's it. As I go through this, I'm going to give you arguments on both sides. Both sides are going to rebut arguments. In a typical debate, there is no rebuttals on the fly, right? We, we're used to political debates where you can see someone rebut in the moment. That's not really how it works. You, you can raise your hand, but if I'm going to sacrifice time out of my debate to answer your question, it better be a good question. So typically, I don't trust that you have a good question, so I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to use my entire time to tell you why I'm right and not give them any reason to ask a question that might skew you towards their argument. This side, I'm going to be defending a literal six-day creation. This side, I'm going to tell you there's a possibility. Get mad at Bob later. If you're up here and you're like, this was terrible, I want to remind you guys to take notes. Because at the end of this debate, you guys are going to participate. I'm a youth pastor, so I'm big into participation. You guys are going to participate at the end of the debate. You guys are going to raise a one if you think the affirmative side won the argument and a two if the negative side won the argument. You should raise the number that you actually think won, not the number that you believe. Doesn't, doesn't inherently mean you believe it. Just believe, means you believed that they won this argument right now today. And then we're going to go into a little bit of why we're doing this remember we're thinking through either or arguments and one side is presenting only either or or arguments and if you guys are critically thinking during this next little bit of time you guys are going to see which side is presenting an either or argument and which side is presenting a balanced approach and we're going to explain why that's so significant in our Christian walk you ready get your pens ready I go quick I don't mess around You guys ready? Seriously, I'm going to go fast. The debate begins now. The affirmative side role in this debate is to show the judges that the Bible is explicitly clear that creation in Genesis 1 and 2 should be understood in a literal six days. Here's why. Before we get into the arguments as to why, we want you to remember that your role as a judge is that we only have to prove what the Bible says nothing else. We don't have a burden of proof of proving to you why creation was in a literal six days or not. Just that the Bible says it was in a literal six days. I want you to remember that argument because the negative team's going to come up here and tell us we have the burden of proof of proving how creation happened. We don't. Here's our first argument. Genesis is history. We've never read a historical account and we're like, oh, Napoleon, he made up the dates. Uh, oh, uh, the Civil War, we're just guessing on the, the length of time of this. When we say something is a historical account, it's history. It is recorded exactly how it should be recorded. Secondly, the Hebrew understanding of the word day, yom, is literal day. It means that when we read in our Bible, evening, then morning, the first day, evening, then morning, the second day, evening, then morning, we should not take that to believe, oh, man, there's a massive gap of time in between that evening and morning. No it's day. The Hebrew word identifies it as that. Third, God created everything in a mature state in six days, which helps solidify a six-day approach. Because God can create things in a mature six days, he did create in only six days. There was no need for him to wait millions of years for nature to respond to his creation, to his speaking. Fourth, The evolutionistic order of creation contradicts the Bible, and if the Bible is the authority that we are to follow, then we must follow what it says, and we cannot be making up what order creation happened in or that it happened differently than the six days presented in it. The negative team is going to do a really good job at trying to convince you that there is some other way that this happened. You have to remember that we are going off of what the Bible says. the negative team's first argument. Begins. You ready? Now, the affirmative team's correct. They do have to defend what the Bible says, and they do have the burden of proof. Because they have the burden of proof, you guys are going to see that it's tough to prove it. Therefore, there might be a possibility of something else. The negative team doesn't have to prove that any other point is true, just that there might be another way of looking at it. If we are able to prove that there might be, might is the key word, another way of looking at the creation count other than literal, the negative team has to win. I want you guys to remember that the word negative isn't that you disbelieve creation occurred by God, just that we are presenting a different view than literal. Here's our arguments. We're going to respond to what the affirmative team said while also presenting new cases first. Genesis is history. However, that does not clarify a major theory in Christian thought called the gap theory that occurs before the days of creation started. Between 1-1 and 1-2, a lot of theologians believe that there is a gap of time. If there's a gap of time, six days isn't literal. There was time before six days. That's why you should believe if you wanna believe, a literal account, but that can't negate gap theory. Because that might be a possibility, you should vote negative. Secondly, the affirmative team argues that the Hebrew word for day is actually the Hebrew word for day. That doesn't explain the phenomenal language theory that Dr. Ram presents in, uh, uh, 50 years ago, Dr. Ram presents the phenomenal language theory that states that creation was revealed to Moses in a literal six days. But Moses wasn't alive during creation. Therefore, God had to show it to him in a way that Moses would understand, and that would be through a vision that lasted six days. Moses would have penned Genesis 1 and 2 as he saw it in his vision. That's called the phenomenal language theory presented by Dr. Ram. This means that a Christian can believe that God is the creator of all, that God is authoritative over creation but it doesn't mean that God in his creation necessarily created in six days, but revealed in six days. Third, the negative believes that the affirmative's argument that a mature earth is only stronger basis for our side because just as easily the affirmative team could have not read the word mature into Genesis 1 and 2, which is what they did, and they could have said it could have been created immature, which means we could believe that Adam was created as an infant which is impossible because he could not have lived as an infant. We could have believed that the trees were created in infancy or the bushes or the vegetation was created in infancy just as much as we could believe that it was created in maturity. We believe that that is a strong argument for negative. Fourth, the negative team has not argued once for the evolutionary order. We didn't even argue before they put that on us. We are saying that there's another way of looking at it that can align with the order of creation in the Bible, but isn't literal. Therefore, we should win that argument as well. There's several other theories outside of the gap theory and the phenomenal age theory, but we're only going to address one more, and it's our final argument and position. The negative adds that the revelatory day theory is very similar to phenomenal language theory, but it doesn't focus on the word day, which that one does. This says that it was just simply revealed to Moses in six days. Therefore, Moses wrote it in six days. It doesn't worry about the word, but the how it was revealed. The revelatory day theory explains exactly how any Christian could understand Genesis 1-2. to Negative, again, wants to reassert that a literal creation could happen. We don't deny that. We just don't see that the Bible tells us it's the only way that we need to understand it. Therefore, the negative team rests its case. The affirmative argument. There's gonna be one more argument for each side and then a closing statement, then you guys are gonna make your decision. Affirmative argument number two, we're gonna to respond to arguments from them while restating our points. The negative team has done an exceptional job at manipulating you. They've done an exceptional job at manipulating you To say that things that aren't stated in Scripture, like the gap theory. Scripture doesn't say there's a gap of time. Why would we write that into it? Or like the phenomenal language theory. Scripture nowhere else gives us an illustration as to why day should mean anything other than a literal day. We read the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Days are days. Why is it different in Genesis 1 and 2? We look at the revelatory day theory. Why do I have any problem believing that God can reveal in just amount as much time as He can create? That doesn't prove anything for the negative team. They've done an excellent job at manipulating you to think that other theories could be true. They're not. Don't believe them. Secondly, like just stated, there's no evidence at all that there's a gap of time between Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2. Therefore we shouldn't read it into the account. Third. We read that Genesis 1 and 2 were creating mature because seeds were coming out of the vegetation. Fruit was coming out of the plants. We also assert that if it wasn't mature, in a perfect creation, God can sustain Adam and Eve in the beginning. And so we don't need it to be mature because if we believe that God is a perfect father, he would have been a perfect father and would have cared for them in the beginning. But we do believe that they were created mature, and we don't believe that either side of that argument matters to this debate anymore, so we're gonna concede that point to the negative team. Fourth, the affirmative team addresses the fact that an age gap seems, oh, wrong part, fourth. The negative team has not argued once for an evolutionary order. We believe that the theories align uh, with what they just said, aren't actually any evidence from any authoritative word that could be taken as true. Our job is to say what the Bible says, not to argue anything else. And so anything that they say was an idea created by a fallible person about an infallible God, and because of that, we should believe in the infallibility of Scripture and lean on what Scripture says clearly. That's why we should believe in a literal account. Fifth. A new argument the affirmative team is asserting is that if we are to take Genesis 1-2 to as metaphorical or allegorical, we're going to get to a point where we get to further scriptures that lead to redemptive history where we're just able to think that's a metaphor? What happens when we get to Genesis 3 and we hit sin and we just can believe that original sin didn't occur? Then why did Jesus die on the cross for our salvation? We have to believe scripture to be taken literally. Therefore, the affirmative team wins. The second and last negative argument. The affirmative team calls it manipulation. We call it critical thinking. Don't let them think that we're manipulating you to think thoughtfully about what happened in the beginning. Our final responses and our final arguments are this. The, an example of reading... History that shouldn't be read literally is when we get to the creation account in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 says that vegetation appeared on the third day, but Genesis 2.5 alludes to vegetation appearing after man. How can I read both literally? Genesis 1.24 says animals are created before man, but Genesis 2.19 alludes to the exact opposite. Again, I ask you as the judges, how can it be read literally? If we believe that Genesis in 1-2 should be read solely literally and understood solely literally, then we get to a place where we can't tell the difference in history of what should be read literally and what shouldn't. If Genesis is history, which we've all conceded that it is, is it true that Genesis could also maintain poetry and allegory and metaphor? It is. Nobody writes in a silo of only a historical account. We know that since Moses was writing, he had to write out of a vision received by God about the beginning of the earth because he wasn't there. Therefore, it is possible that Moses wrote an allegorical account, and that is why Genesis 1 and 2 differ from one another. Secondly, since it can't be taken literally, it's even stronger evidence for Dr. Ram's theory, the the phenomenal language theory, that day did mean literally day, but it related to Moses receiving a vision per day. And that amount of creation that he was revealed to in that day is what we have written in our bibles as evening and morning one day. Evening and morning the second day. It was related to the vision he received from Lord, the Lord. Third, the negative concedes. The age gap theory can't be proven. We won't run with that argument any longer. However, a literal interpretation is hard to believe if we can just assume that everything was created in infancy instead of maturation, as we talked about earlier. Therefore, you can't believe inherently that it is literal. You have to believe that there might be another option. The closing argument for the affirmative team. And then you guys are going to get ready after the closing argument for the negative team. Our final argument is this a literal interpretation is best. It's the best way to understand the creation of the earth. Because if we believe that the earth is an allegorical story, then we open the door to the entirety of the Bible not being taken literally. We get to this situation where, man, do we believe that a literal Savior bared the literal burden of our literal sins on a literal cross, raising to a literal life again, and then ascending to a literal heaven to be seated at a literal right hand of the Father, or no? No. We have to believe in a literal interpretation of this because it has effects on everything else we read. The affirmative wants to remind the judges that all we have to do is prove to do what the Bible says. And we believe we've done an effective job at that. The negative argument. An argument. The negative team asserts that a literal interpretation could happen. They just haven't been convincingly clear that it did happen. The affirmative team never once responded to any of the theories presented outside of just meandering that literal happened. Okay, well, what about all the other theories by uh, all the other smart people in the world? We can't prove that it literally happened. Therefore... We must believe that the negative team wins. Also, the affirmative team is going to bring up that it's a salvation matter. It's not. You can read that Genesis 1 and 2 was a metaphor, and it doesn't affect your reading of the cross at all. You can believe that the creation of the world happened however it happened, and that the God was still sovereign to redeem at the end. You don't have to tie those two together because it's not redemptive history. It has nothing to do with your salvation. If we were talking about Genesis 3, sure. Genesis 1 and 2 does not. Therefore, that's not a good argument that they're going to lean on. So you guys have to vote negative. Okay? The debate's done. The debate's done. This is what I want you guys to do now. I need full participation. Otherwise, I'm going to look like an idiot in a minute. So sorry if I'm not allowed to say idiot. Um, I'm going to look really bad in a minute if you guys don't participate. So I really need some participation here. Otherwise, I'm probably going to like, have to go home and cry for a while. Uh, you're going to hold a one-up if I did a good job at affirming the literal six-day creation of the world. And that's what you're leaving here in this moment believing. I want to remind you, it does not mean that's what you actually believe. It just means that's who you believe won this argument. Or, I, I love to win, winners win, Uh, I did an effective job at defending the position of maybe something else, but also maybe that. Again, not necessarily your theological position, it's just a fun activity. Here we go. A one for this side, a two for this side. We're all gonna hold up numbers at the same time so that you guys can't make fun of each other later for what you guys thought. Here we go, in three, two, one, numbers up. Wow, okay, that's pretty good. Here, here we go. This is gonna take a little bit more courage now. I want to I want you to raise your hand if you held up a number that was different than your position on this. Like you, you believed the other argument, or at least you were like, man, that was good. That was a good argument for that. I didn't come in here believing that, but you convinced me during this argument. Raise your hand if that was you. Three, two, one. That's impressive. I was good at debate. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I was good. Sign me up, coach. I need a scholarship. Um, Here's where this all plays off. The affirmative side was arguing either or argument the entire time. Either you believed in the creation of the world or you can't believe the rest of the Bible. This side was arguing what we like to call a balanced approach, both and approach. Theologically, this is a tough position to be in because when people ask you questions, you don't have direct answers. Relationally, this is a great place to be in because you can find answers together instead of telling someone what to believe. This position pushes people away. This position says, come in and explore. We can still have our belief in this position and allow people to voice their belief, that's that position, and have a good discussion. I had a four-hour discussion with a brother this week. Wasn't planned, four straight hours, and we had slightly different views, but by the end of it, we got to this place where we had some partial agreements, and it was phenomenal. It was maybe the best conversation I've had about theological issues this year. A couple of weeks ago at youth group, we're going through this doctrine series right now where the students are learning the doctrines, and I don't believe it's my job to push what they should believe down their throat. I think that I should tell them what I believe, explain what the Bible says, and then show them, hey, there's a couple other views out there from really smart people as well. I disagree with them for this, 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 but where are you? A student two weeks ago asked me a question I had literally, literally never thought about in my life. My response in that moment wasn't, well, son, this is what the Bible says, therefore. My, my response was, you're a genius, you should be taking my job thinking about questions like that, right? Like, we need to discover that. I'm going to go into my Bible, and I'm going to search this week. I said, right now, this is what I think, but I've never thought about that question, so let's discover the answer together. Here's where I want to be careful about saying a both-and approach is is good. There's essential beliefs that the church has that you cannot have an either-or opinion about. If you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. Like, If you don't believe that that paid the penalty for your sins, like, that's an either-or, right? Like, that's an essential belief. On everything else, we can sit with our brothers and sisters in Christ and have good dialogue. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much we want to be told that this is what it says, the other side will say, I agree that that's what it says, but... And if you can say, I agree that's what it says, but, then there can't be an agreement for the entirety of the church. That brings us to Ephesians 4. You guys keep your notes there? Paul urges us. Paul urges us. And I love what he says. Uh, we quote Ephesians 4.12 really often, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. We seldom quote 13. 13 which says this, until, big, big connection word, we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until, everyone say until. Until. Well, you didn't say it like me. Say it it like me. Come on, until. Until until we all, who's all? Everybody. It's not you. It's everybody. It's all. Until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How long are we going to be attaining? A while. A while. Earlier in this uh, chapter, Paul starts off by how we can attain this. In verses 1 and 2, he says this Therefore, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That calling is a Christian, born again, renewed, made new by the Father, through the Son, a Christian. It says this, walk in the manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing Tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this is what it looks like. Tomas, come here. He said he said no to me doing this, but hey, Tomas is a disciple of Jesus, he'll come up. He'll come up. This is what happens. Tomas, just stand right there. This what this is what this looks like practically. I'm sorry, Tomas, I'll buy you something later. This is what this happens practically. He's so mad at me, and Tomas knows how to fight, so I'm a little worried about this. What this looks like is Tomas is a believer. Are you a believer? Yeah, he's a believer. Come on, say that with some confidence, bro. Son of the father. He's a believer. I'm a believer. Maybe Tomas believes that creation happened in a non-literal way. And I'm over here and I'm like, creation happened in a literal way. So as we walk towards each other and we're going to have conversation, Tomas is going to be telling me, but because I'm either or, I'm going to tell Tomas he has to lose, he has to get out of the way in order for him to continue in his faith. That's what that does. It makes him get out of the way so that I can continue pushing people around with what I want them to believe. This will push Tomas away from me. He doesn't want to be discipled by me anymore because, well, probably this, but because I just pushed him out of the way. Tomas doesn't like that. None of us like that. None of us want to be pushed around by someone else saying, the Bible says this, they for you. Nobody wants that. But this is what it should look like. Tomas, come here. Come here. You nervous? No, no. What are you nervous about? You could beat me up two times tomorrow, Okay this is what it looks like. Mark three fourteen. when Jesus calls his disciples, he says he calls his disciples and then they were with him. They didn't believe the same thing as Jesus in that moment. Peter and Paul end up arguing in the Jerusalem council about what a Christian should be. Peter, a, the cornerstone of the church, says that in order to be a Christian, you need to first become a Jew. What? He didn't get it perfectly. And none of us will. So what it looks like is you find somebody, and you walk with them as you're exploring the faith so that you guys can better understand what's going on. Give it up for Tomas. Um, this is what it says about, this is what it says about this, and then we're going to finish, and then the band's going to come up. But, we, we're all familiar with the verse that says "iron sharpens iron." It's like everyone that's like young has a tattoo. "Iron sharpens iron, dude." <laughs> everyone loves to get tattoos nowadays. I have I have tattoos, so so don't so don't hear don't hear that I hate tattoos. Iron sharpens iron. Have y'all ever sharpened a knife? Do you sharpen it on another knife? No. Never. Never once have you sharpened it on another knife. If you did, have your kids, if you have kids, have they ever taken a knife and just rubbed it against like cement or something and like it dulls it immediately? That's what happens if you rub it on another knife. This is what uh, uh, this, this guy named Bill, I don't know what his last name was, but this guy named Sam White quoted him. Bill apparently is a blacksmith. Blacksmith Bill says this, he was doing a science experiment about how iron actually sharpens other iron, because that can be kind of confusing. Because we all know, as critical thinkers, if you sharpen iron against itself, it doesn't actually sharpen; it dulls. So, what does he mean here? It says this: the ancient smiths knew. He said, more interesting to think about is that if one of the irons has a different texture, different belief, different view of the same Bible, different texture. The iron could be sharpened better and faster than if the blades are exactly the same. As the friction increases, it gets uncomfortable. This is what he says. It gets uncomfortable. As the blacksmith, it's uncomfortable. Flames start happening because sparks occur. But he ends this. What was most important about ancient blacksmiths is they didn't, have science, they didn't have science as we have it today. So they had to stick together to figure stuff out. They had to stick together to figure stuff out. My question as we leave here today, and if you guys are three-point people, I'll have three points here at the end that you guys can write down because I'm not a point person. As we finish, the worship team can come up. Uh, as we finish, this is what I want you guys to leave asking yourself. Who do I hang out with that has a different texture than me? Am I hanging out with people that only agree with what I, what I believe about the Bible? Or am I hanging out with people that are going to stretch my understanding or clarify my understanding and in doing so keep sacred the bond of peace? Keep sacred unity, keep sacred love, keep sacred gentleness and humility. Am I gonna do that or am I gonna not hang out with someone else and as time slowly goes on of me being sharpened by another piece of iron that's exactly the same as me, am I gonna slowly dull in my faith? Here's the three things, if you're point people, I'll go through these really quick, that you can look out for to see if you're using the either or fallacy in your own life. First, are you engaging in conversation with a wanting to win attitude. I have to win, therefore they have to believe me. Secondly, are you engaging in conversation without exhibiting any fruits of the spirit? Third, are you engaging in conversation without the goal of unity? Three questions to see if you're working through an either or fallacy or if you're open to the both and. I hope that you guys reflect on that this week. I hope that I hear next week that either you're really mad because you got called out or you're really happy because you realize you're doing this the right way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your perfect example in scripture. Lord, thank you that we have the ability to clarify and understand what we believe because you have equipped saints all over the world who believe in the inerrancy, authority, and inspiration of your Bible that we believe in also. Lord, we pray that we humble ourselves before you to know that you are the ultimate one who knows everything in this book. And Lord, as we seek to walk with you, Lord, we pray that we walk through this life with other Christians in a spirit of being with them instead of against them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.